It's the World Cup Road Trip Podcast. It's the day before the decider, and we're just one day away from kissing this whole thing goodbye. Francis Leach yet again, crawling around Moscow in a Yandex taxi trying to get to my next destination alive. And I thought that Tony and I would pose a few questions to one another to find out how the World Cup has been for each of us. This is the World Cup Road Trip Q&A. My first question for you, Tony. In an age of cynicism, commercialism, drug cheating, political intrigue, can you still believe in sport? Does the World Cup make you believe in the spirit of sport? Or are we just kidding ourselves? In terms of spirit of sport, Francis, the World Cup does make me believe in the spirit of sport. And we're just kidding ourselves. Of course there's corruption. Of course there's cheating. There's bad behaviour. There's gamesmanship. There's the very worst of sport bubbling under the surface. Um, and it always coexists with the very best of sport, the stuff that sucks me back time and again. And in the end, I've reconciled myself to the fact that I will never leave it. It doesn't matter what <laughs> the sporting administrators do. Um, they're, they're, I will be back at some point because for me, there is a seduction in the contest. I love the winning and the losing and I love the the demonstration of the skills. And there's a beauty for me in sport that... Um, that is akin to what some people get out of art and theatre and music. For me, the telling of a story where you don't know what the end is is one of the ultimate seductions, and um, and I'm never going to leave it. And so the World Cup, this World Cup in particular, delivered. This was no dour World Cup with nil alls and one 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 nils. This was a this was a goal glut, really, and it was uh, played on attacking terms and there were upsets aplenty and, uh, and the people were there on the streets and the Russians were loving it and we were loving it. And for me, it's a tournament for the ages. And, and so, yes, I am absolutely aware that there's a cloud hanging over even Russia's hosting of the tournament. Uh, the English are as upset as we are about Qatar 2022, uh, Russia 2018. There was a sense that the brown paper bags were handed over freely and multitudinously. Uh, and yet I am able to push that aside and remember Tony Cruz standing over a free kick against Sweden with 30 seconds to go and delivering for his country. Or Milad Jedinak putting away yet another penalty with nerves of steel. Or uh, Ronaldo with the question being asked, um, how great is he scoring a hat-trick in that first game against Spain? I remember that even though I was watching it on a mobile phone in a bus, Francis. Um, I wouldn't say I had prime viewing position. But the story of sport and the glory of sport is just in my DNA. And so no matter how bad it gets, uh, there will always be a bit of T. Wilson lingering about the top level, um, getting my sporting fix. And, you know, I even think of the Australian cricketers and uh, this is a different sport, obviously, and a different scandal. But when those blokes come back from their ball tampering uh, hiatus, I've no doubt that um, one day Steve Smith will again score 100 for Australia and, uh, and the sucker that is T. Wilson will have a tear in his eye, um, cheering as loud as anyone. Um, so that's the complicated answer to your complicated question. 
Russia gave us the best and worst of lots of things. They do things like history well, they do culture well, they do art well, they do literature brilliantly. Um, and yet I think they might have the worst beer taps in the world for the slowest flow. My question to you, what is the thing Russia does best? And what is, in your opinion, the thing Russia does worst? Yeah, Tony, you are right about the beer. Russia is not ready to host Oktoberfest. The way they sell their beer is maybe the way you would sell and buy a house with just as much paperwork involved. I wouldn't be surprised, Tony, if we actually paid stamp duty on every beer that we bought and that there's a title deed for, for everyone as well and the picture of the beer doesn't appear in the paper the next day with a big red sign, sold, stamped across it. So, yes, they've got a lot to learn about service delivery. And let's face it, the beer's not that great either. But anyway, that's another question. What do they do well? Uh, their history. They do their history really, really well. They have so in tune to it and defined by it in many ways. You get a real sense here in Moscow in particular about how the Great Patriotic War, World War Two, has defined this culture um, and been maybe exploited, of course, by the people in the Kremlin throughout uh, different regimes to, uh, to pre- present a particular image of Russia to Russians themselves. But a cataclysmic, seismic event of losing, you know, beyond 24 million of your own people in the victory over Nazi Germany uh, is something that uh, would change the view of the world for generations. And it's certainly done that. And Russians are very certain about their place in the world because of that. And, you know, if you understand that, you might get a sense of how they look back at the world even today. And they're feeling they have a right to, to have a stake in the world uh, in a way that the West holds in, in great suspicion. So, you know, it gives you a perspective on the current politics uh, that uh, you wouldn't have unless you actually came here and experienced it. So they do that really, really, really well. They do also do infrastructure. Well, they're doing infrastructure, new infrastructure better than us. The fast trains that get you uh, around to some cities, uh, the one to St. Petersburg, four hours one way. There you are. Imagine that to Sydney and Melbourne. Well, imagining it is the only thing you'll ever do because for some reason we can't bring ourselves to see the value in that and invest in that. Um, and the metro, love the metro here. So Moscow would be uh, unworkable in winter if it didn't have the metro. So maybe that's born of necessity. But the high, uh, the high uh, speed internet and Wi-Fi down there as well as the, the, the pace and the efficiency of the metro uh, is absolutely wonderful. What they don't do well other than beer they don't trust each other to have a full and free democracy let's face it um you know quiet conversations with russians everywhere and you get the sense that they've made an accommodation with this regime as they have in the past that uh a a strong man who has the makes the appearance makes the uh, lives under the facade of a democratic process without brooking any real opposition and intimidating those who would stand in opposition or ask hard questions about the efficacy of the government uh is something that they're prepared to accept although grumble about because in their own minds, the alternative is chaos. So that generational uh, wound that has been you know, so deep in the Russian soul for so long uh, it still hasn't healed 
for them to trust themselves that they can manage a democracy in which everyone has an equal voice and even dissenters are entitled to a seat at the table. It stretches back to, you know, the mid-19th century when serfdom, you know, the Russian version of indentured labour and slavery was in place. The Bolshevik years, the Stalin years, when opposition was cruelly crushed and the brief flowering of democracy in the early 90s which saw the Yeltsin years turn into a chaos and a gangster culture that's now been dressed up in better suits and and run by the, the Putin regime, but at least people feel that there's some sense of order and it's something that they crave maybe even more at the moment than the right to express their dissent. So that's something they haven't been able to throw the cloak of fear off and you get a sense of that everywhere, even on the people's faces in the street. I mean, I know there's a lot of, you know, there's a joke, a standard joke about walking around Russia and you could smile at someone in the street and they'll give you an Easter Island statue face. They give better Easter Island statue face than anyone in the world. You will not be able to read the the thoughts, the emotions and intentions of the average Russian as you sit on the metro. They give you nothing. And that's born of generations of people living internally, having an internal monologue in their head about who they are and what they feel and not, not re- revealing anything to anyone because the consequences might be damning. And it still goes on. It's not a reflection of who they are as people, but it's how they move in the world. And, you know, initially as an Australian, because of the way we are, we're demonstrative, you know, we're like a freaking billboard. We walk around, you know exactly how we feel by looking at us. We hide nothing. It's quite confronting. It's, it's something that it takes a little getting used to and understanding it is not who the Russians are, but it's how they feel they have to be in order to navigate the world. So they're the two sides of a Russia that I, you know, it's like the Matryoshka doll. Every time you take one out, there's something else inside <laughs> that reveals itself a little more. Uh, Russia is, is one of those places. Nothing good is easy. Russia isn't easy. Tony, we all came to Russia, no doubt, with a series of preconceptions and assumptions about Russia, the people, the culture, the place and the politics. What's been the most surprising thing you've learnt by being here for an extended period of time? And maybe also, what from being here has been reinforced for you about the country that maybe you thought you already knew? Well, in terms of preconceptions, I tried not to have too many going in. Um, Certainly, the picture that's painted of Russia in the media is that it's a dangerous and possibly quite grey and second world and corrupt and villainous society and you know there was that I heard that a lot of English didn't travel to Russia for that reason um, but I, it never really worried me going I think pretty much everywhere I've ever gone um, that when you arrive it ends up being a place with people like many other people and and certainly we saw um, all types of people in Russia but but generally it was a it was a very positive flavor and I, I don't know whether that busted my preconceptions so much as um, confirmed what I hoped would be true um, and that is that that there are very good Russians and and that even though their recent history um, in a geopolitical sense is a troubled history um, they have the same wants and desires and problems and family dramas as every other um, people around the world and and uh, and certainly I mean in terms of the look of Russia I think um, I, I, my preconceptions were that it could be a landscape that was dotted with Meccano style apartment blocks that um, go on 
for as long as the eye can see. And when we first arrived at the Salute Hotel in the outskirts of Moscow, I have to say that, that in some ways that preconception was confirmed. But then, then when I got into the centres of the cities that we visited, like Samara, which was um, apparently going to be a very industrial uh, eyesore of a city, um, or Kazan, which I knew nothing about, or Moscow, or, um, or Sochi, um, when we reached the city centre... There was a sense that the uh, these were beautiful, ancient, history-soaked um, places, and 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 it was more European than perhaps I thought it was going to be. Um, and and it was, and they were also modern, thriving places with nightlife and um, and subcultures and music and theatre and art. Um, you know, just to, just as we would uh, expect of of a modern Australian city. So. In many ways, it was more like um, the West than I anticipated, and I think that was a, a common theme. Um, uh, but also, there was there were there were differences, I guess, as well, in the sense that that Soviet influence was there, particularly in the outer suburbs. And one preconception, I guess, that was confirmed is the whole "Do Russians smile?" Uh, or do they glare stoically at you from underneath their KGB hats? Well, you know, I found that. Um, they probably don't smile in the way that if you if you initiate a smile on a train with uh, your fellow commuter uh, because you've made eye contact in Russia they very well they they may ride out that smile and stay in the frown position. Um, but as soon as any contact is made or any effort is made as a tourist to get help from a Russian, I found that um, that 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 that. that maybe that stoic or stony exterior would evaporate and, and certainly um, there was a, a genuine desire for this World Cup to work and for it to be a friendly place to visit and so um, any preconception I had that they were a cold or difficult people was, was shattered pretty quickly and and, um, and the Russians were you know they were fabulous um, uh, a generalization of course but um, but you know that is the impression that so many of us had coming away from the World Cup I hope that the World Cup road trip has people eyeing off a World Cup trip themselves. Um, if you were advising a prospective World Cup tourist, would you say group stage for the colour and excitement and multitude of games or finals for the ramping up of the pressure and the expanding stakes? Oh, Tony, no contest. It's group stage, first, second and third. That's when the carnival, the festival of football, is at its most vibrant and brilliant. That's the time you want to be here, when people from all over the world are here and you get that sense of being part of something really special, that common language of the game, which you know we talk a lot about and we spout on and people must think, oh, what a bunch of bullshit artists, what a bunch of international elites talking about a, a rainbow nation of football lovers from across the globe. But you know what? It fucking well is. It just is. It is brilliant. If if we played more football <laughs> in festivals like this and tournaments like this, there'd be a lot less problems in the world. It is an extraordinary event. And you and I have been to a few of them, and they never lose their luster and their allure and their promise of being part of you know uh, you know something bigger than yourself that uh, that that extends you a little bit and you meet people from different parts of the world you would never otherwise meet and you go to places you would never otherwise go it, it takes you out of yourself and allows you to walk in other people's shoes in a way that nothing else can and that's why we keep coming back 
Um, and it's game after game after game. You can just, if you're lucky enough to come, you immerse yourself in it. The whole world beyond the realm of the World Cup disappears and you just live your passion. And that is so, so special. Uh, it never tires of being, you know, two or three weeks that you will remember forever and treasure. And no two World Cups are ever the same because of their location and the, and the, and the people you meet and the circumstances you find yourself in. Uh, it is a brilliant, brilliant experience. Life-changing experience. You always walk away from the group stage of a World Cup learning something new about yourself and the world, and that's what I love about it. Um, yeah, the finals are important. That, that's when it becomes more of a, a you know, a Sports Central, ESPN, you know, knuckle down and talk about who, how and why the game's going to be won. And we love that as well. That's all part of it. But it loses a bit of its luster because the critical mass of people being here starts to dissipate. The, the colours on the streets starts to ebb away. If the host nation go out, um, you know, people around start to lose a little bit of interest. It just loses momentum. And, you know, the games themselves are fantastic. If you can get into the stadium, if you can afford to, they certainly are, are that. So I'm not sort of uh, saying don't come for the finals if you can be here. But if you have to choose, then you be here for the group stage. Be here as part of that Rainbow Nation, international Rainbow Nation of football fans who uh, get to, to hang out with each other for those, the briefest of time every four years and, and enjoy uh, what the game has to offer, the magic of the game itself. Um, and I fear that maybe it's the last time we'll get to do it this way. It's not going to be the same in Qatar for those that choose to go. Um, it can't be. It, it just doesn't have the infrastructure or the setup or the civic life to facilitate that sort of experience. It just won't. You know, the notion of sitting on a cruise ship uh, and then sort of, you know, getting to and from the games, very functional and transactional. Uh, it'll be very different. And then beyond that, the f you know, the three-nation tournament 2026, again, uh, a diluted tournament in a sense. You'll only get two group games. It'll be dispersed over a huge area. You know, that will be different again. That might have its own charms, but it won't be this sort of this intense celebration the way that this has been. And we've been so lucky to to enjoy uh, these World Cups at, you know, in the prime of our lives. So in incredibly grateful to, to have had that experience. But, yeah, the group stage, Tony, always. It's, uh, it's when we as people and the game is at its best. Tony, you and I both love the world game. We've travelled many, many miles to watch it. But we know there are people at home that still may be a little suspicious of the game, focus on the elements of football that are easy to criticise, hashtag Neymar, who will never quite come to the game. Do you ever believe Australia's wider sporting public are going to fall in love with football the same way we have? Or is it just going to be you and me, two lonely, lonely pilgrims travelling the earth, proselytising the world game in the hope that others will be saved by it the way that we have? How to make Australians see the light and love football? It is one of the eternal questions. Um, I have to say, I've probably never been sadder as a sports fan than on the day that Qatar was awarded that 2022 World Cup. Um, apart from the sludge of corruption that surrounded that decision, um, there was just this sinking feeling that this was our chance, that in the near future, here was the opportunity for Australia to host a tournament and for us to, to actually see what it's about, for the, the people of the world to arrive, for the quality of the sort of football that we've seen over the last few weeks, for that to be played right on our doorstep um, or in our backyards, 
um, for the Australian people to engage with the tournament as I know they will. Um, we did it um, in micro for the Asia Cup, but it would just be on a factor of 50 if we got to hold host a World Cup. And that was just so sad to me that for our 42 million, we managed to buy one dubious FIFA vote. Um, and uh, and so, you know, are we going to be able to do it? Are we going to be able to convince people that this is a game worth following? Um, I think one factor in play is that Australians are, are generally raised on contact sport. And so that when... Uh, they see footballers rolling around on the ground when there's been very little contact. Um, there's a sense that that is against the spirit of fair play. And you see that with Neymar and in, in, in probably the main, the first reaction that most disciples of AFL and rugby league have when they watch football. And I have to say, I found it very difficult, probably the most difficult thing to come to terms with over my decades of football fandom, um, having had an AFL background. But I do think you do have to put it to the side to some extent and, and say that it's a cultural difference. And if you can appreciate that what the sides are trying to do, which is to win the all-important free kick um, and, and any free kick in a front half is incredibly important in football that to to grab that opportunity um, to manipulate the clock um, to play the game in the way that it's currently played which involves an element of gamesmanship if you can kind of take that bitter pill and, and for Australians I think it is quite a bitter pill to swallow um, then the rest of the game is so spectacular um, the actual dribbling skill the the triangles the ball control and even the courage like they get hacked and, and manage to to plough on um, so there's kind of good and bad in it all and I think um, that as Australians we focus on the bad and find that very frustrating and certainly grabbing a team like actually investing in a team I think I always say that's the first ticket to becoming a lover of the sport that if you watch it as a neutral you'll sit there and go oh the score's one nil um, they're rolling all over the ground why am I watching this but if you say, I care who's going to win, there's probably no more stressful, no more brutally stressful game to watch than football. And, and that's why um, you and I, when we see a ball being knocked around the back half, can feel anxiety because we know what a turnover will mean. But um, someone who's coming to the game for the first time, they don't see the potentials in the triangles that are being played. They don't see um, the stakes at play. Um, all they see is a low-scoring game with people rolling around. And um, So someone choosing a team, I think, is the most important thing. Um, and the second thing would be just to, to bring the best to our country. And, you know, we, we just need to host a World Cup. Francis, my third question, it relates to the Socceroos. Back here in Australia, there's a fair bit of hand-wringing about our performance Certainly because our third game was the worst of the performances, some of the gloss that might have been applied through games one and two um, has been washed away. Uh, my question is the Ange question. Uh, did we play differently because he wasn't here? Um, would we have gone better? And what are the consequences? And if you can tell us why he quit, I know you know him quite well, that would be some scoop. Well, Tony, my magic eight ball doesn't work any better than yours in predicting what might have happened if Ange Postacoglu had have been in charge. Um, it's still a mystery to everybody as to how recent events uh, took their course. 
Socceroos here, workmanlike, pragmatic, um, just without any sharp edge to to win us a game that we probably should have won, particularly the game against Denmark and maybe even the French who were in the final. We had our chance and we weren't good enough to, to take it. Um, we didn't win a game at this World Cup. We didn't win one at the last World Cup. So that gives you a sense of maybe a sense of a stagnation in the game at the international level. And my fear is that underneath that, uh, the infrastructure of the game doesn't support uh, a continued growth in improvement in performance. Um, there's a whole raft of issues I could go into. Obviously, the, the governance issues at the FFA, uh, stagnation in the A-League. Uh, I think the massive barriers to entry to young footballers from immigrant and um, poorer communities. We've turned the game into a middle-class game for those that can afford the fees to play at NPL level. We've been seduced by the idea of, of academies and elite pathways. If you're a kid growing up in the western suburbs of Sydney or in Dandenong from a Sudanese background or a Lebanese background or whatever it is, a Syrian background, and your parents look at the 2000 bucks or so it might cost you a year to play in the NPL, they're going to have other priorities. Those first immigrant communities were the lifeblood of Australian football that delivered our best Socceroos teams because the game was open, accessible and available to them. And I fear that we're locking that talent out as, as the game becomes dependent on the fees of, of young players to support you know the seven or so national teams that Australia puts out around the world uh, because the corporate uh, firepower within the game isn't enough to find the money to underpin those ambitious uh, plans to be competitive, you know, whether it's the Joeys, the Socceroos, the Matildas, uh, all of those, can, you know, all those important programs. So we've got some serious issues uh, and this might be it for us for now. This might be it. Uh, you know, who knows if we qualify next time out. Um, on the issue of whether Ange would have done it differently or better, I don't know. All indications were that the team was struggling with with his game plan, but I I don't put it beyond him to have made uh, the adjustments with the players to get them to have played in a way that might have got us a result. Um, Certainly, it was a more daring plan, a more ambitious plan, a plan that wanted to defy our place in the world, wanted to, to reach for a higher goal. And for a long time, we bought into that. And, you know, you and I were both in Porto Alegre to watch the Socceroos against the Dutch, and we almost pulled off a famous victory there as a consequence. We frightened the Chileans in, in Cuiabra in 2014 as well, and we won the Asian Cup playing that way. But as the game, in a way, withered under the weight of its own internal and domestic and administrative problems, it lost faith in the ability of the coach to be ambitious and to aim for higher goals. And maybe, you know, that was something that possibly Cogley simply couldn't live with anymore. It wasn't the game he wanted it to be. I've got no idea what triggered you know, the ultimate decision to go, other than he trusted his instinct that he wasn't going to be able to do what he wanted to do with the people he wanted to do it with in this particular campaign. And, you know, he's got to be true to himself. You know, a lot of people hold him, you know, accountable for the idea that he abandoned this team. And, you know, they've got a case. There's no doubt they've got a case that Ange made it about himself and that's something that a lot of people felt very uncomfortable with and and they still, uh, in some ways, you know, hold a grudge against him for that. But he had to be true to himself as well and that's what he was. Um, The Van Marwijk thing is so weird when you think about it. He never once coached this Australian team in Australia. You know, barely set foot in the country. It was this sort of lack of confidence in Graham Arnold. If Graham Arnold is the coach of the Socceroos now, why wasn't he before the World Cup? 
Why didn't he take this group to the World Cup and you know, let the cards fall where they may, learn from it, work out something new about the playing group that he's got at his disposal and get ready for the Asian Cup? Why was he denied that opportunity? That in itself speaks of a lack of confidence and a lack of certainty at the Football Federation Australia about who we are and what we want. You know, we bought a short-term fix with them, Mark, and you know what? It saved us from soiling ourselves in public uh, at the World Cup. But why do we fear that? Why were we? Why do we look down? We're on the fucking highway, and we look down. Now, Australian football's always on the highway. You know, we're, in a sense, a small footballing nation in a very unique environment with other sporting codes competing for talent. And we've, for so long, you know, been able to achieve above our station because we didn't look down, we looked up. And that was Angie's thing. Look up. Look ahead. Look up. Don't look down. And we looked down and we smelt the fear. And that's where we're at now. So it's going to be fascinating uh, to see what happens in the next six to eight months. Uh, the Asian Cups in January, uh, Arnold has the team in a short space of time. What changes does he make? You know, suddenly do we have to have an entirely new game plan? Van Marwick worked on this short-term fixed game plan and a way he wanted to play. How does that work in relation to what Graham Arnold wants? Do we go back to, to the basement and start again? Why are we doing that? All these questions. The Ange thing, he was true to himself. That's all you can be. And, he, and he, you know, you walk through life, you can't be making decisions to please others. He w- was true to himself. He made a decision that was something that uh, uh, made a lot of people unhappy. But, you know, he probably sleeps well at night knowing that, you know, it was a difficult choice that he had to make. And he made the one that was best for him. And in the end, that's all any of us should or can do. Tony, we've had some dramatic penalty shootouts at this World Cup. Is it the most compelling thing in world sport, the penalty shootout at the World Cup finals? And is it the case that the reason why it is, is as much as we want to see who wins the game, we take plenty of schadenfreude and pleasure from knowing that someone is going to fuck it up? Well, Francis, I think you're spot on. Yes and yes. The penalty shootout at a World Cup is the most stressful thing that can happen in sport. Um, and there is an element of schadenfreude in seeing people miss. Although it's such a, it's such a low they go to that I have to say that I enjoy it in the moment. As in, I almost giggle out of the panic of the situation when, oh, no, he's missed, and your body is coursing with adrenaline. But then in the aftermath of a penalty shootout, I think there's a dirty shame that you enjoyed it so much because you see how broken the person is, how broken the team that's lost is, how unfair it all is. Um, And you kind of think, oh, did I really enjoy that as much as I did? Um, And so (laughs) I think it's a complicated reaction as a football fan. Uh, there's so many efforts or oh, it's always broached as a topic could there be a fairer way and um, there probably could although I have to say more and more the shutdown that goes on in extra time that sense that no one's even trying to score means that you know it's almost as though the teams concede that this is what's going to happen um, I know Croatia scored an extra time but I think that was the only extra time goal wasn't it in the in the entire tournament so they penalties loom there as this uh, as this as this horrible maelstrom of injustice uh, <laughs> and we love them uh, but they are oh they're they're, they're brutal by the way, your call of that Columbia-England 
penalty shootout. My son Jack has become obsessed with it. He um, has cerebral palsy and gets obsessed with some audio recordings. We've listened to it 50 times and I just, I love it. It's awesome. My fourth question, Francis, relates to nationalism and draping in the flag. I know you're not a huge shirt wearer yourself, but uh, my question relates to the World Cup. Do you get, do we have a leave pass for nationalism at the World Cup? Um, is there's something positive about the way in which everyone drapes in colours and sings songs? Or is it the sort of nationalism that makes many people cringe back home, legitimised through the prism of sport? Um, I find that a difficult question to answer myself. Uh, I Personally, I give myself a leave pass and have all the fun that goes with being overtly Australian at World Cups. Uh, but I'm interested in your thoughts. Yeah, good question, Tony. I think we as Australians, particularly travelling away, uh, are much more inclusive in our patriotism. I wouldn't call it nationalism. Nationalism's a different thing altogether. Nationalism is about assertive and aggressive national identity in a way that excludes others. Patriotism is having a, a sense of pride in where you're from and your culture. Uh, and I think we do that well. Um, we are not here at the World Cup to mark territory and to make a statement about Australian culture and ideas and identity being above all others. We come here in, in a spirit of curiosity and, and a spirit of reciprocity. We come here to share and understand and, and to be proud of where we come from. And, and that's what we talked about, about the group stages. We are here to be part of a bigger something else. Um, so, yeah, I think that's fine. I think we strike a lovely balance. In the tours that we've been on, people are very proudly Australian but intensely curious and, about the rest of the world and, and quite humbled to, at, at the prospect of being here and, and sharing with, engaging in uh, the festival of football. It's not about Australia being bigger and better than anyone else, and, and that's fine. I've got no problem with that whatsoever. It's, it's a beautiful thing. We see the best of ourselves. We don't get too many opportunities to see the best of ourselves, and I think maybe being at the World Cup brings that out in us, and it brings it out in most travelling fans. Uh, we didn't have any poor experiences with people in that regard, you know, trying to assert a sort of national identity at the expense of others. Uh, it's, it was great time, and, um, you know, that they're great times to be there, and you know that when you're there, and we've talked about this in the past as well, that when you're singing the national anthem in a place like Kazan or, or Samara, you, you get the sense, the tyranny of distance, how far you've travelled to be there. You're singing back home. You're singing for the people back home you know, on their behalf. And that's quite moving. You know, that's when you do feel that your, your spirit of place, you know, even though it's a long distance away. So, yeah, they're great moments. So I've got no problem with that. And I don't think football is allows itself to be exploited by political elements back home who might want to stamp it with an ugly nationalism. The game is too diverse. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, it's too rainbow nation for it to be representative of any one vision of Australia. So uh, un unlike, you know, say in the UK when the, the fans come here, and they were here again uh, in Moscow the other night, it's just different. You know, when they start singing songs about no surrender to the IRA or the RAF, you know, shooting down German bombers, that's a, that, that is exactly what we are not. We are not about airing old grievances and, and, and trying to, you know, to you know, uh, use sport as a you know, as the last tool of empire. It's just not what we do. So I've got no problem with it, Tony. Uh, you know, uh, other people might try to exploit it, but we come here in the right spirit, and I think we conduct ourselves accordingly. 
Tony, my friend, we had some magic, golden, unforgettable days on this tour as we have on previous tours. But I want you to give me three magic moments from the tour traveling Russia with me. Three moments that made you laugh, made you cry, and made you wonder what the hell. Three moments, Francis. It's very difficult to narrow them down. But I'm going to start with the... The paramilitary choir at the Green and Gold Army opening party, just to see you battle with the lack of a feed from the opening game, to see you padding and announcing the goals like it was Alan McGilvray covering the cricket in the 1930s with no vision. Um, that was that was a real thrill. Um, and then the paramilitary choir coming on and singing the Russian national anthem. Uh, that was spine-tingling stuff. And to have those big Soviet statues surrounding us and the high ceilings and we're in an art gallery sort of space that was just so Soviet. And then these Soviet-looking guys coming out in their para- paramilitary caps and just lifting the roof off the place with arguably the best anthem that's ever been written. Uh, that was one of the moments that I'll never forget from the last few weeks. Um, The second one, I'm going to go in stadium. And I try to think of what the greatest in stadium moment was. I think it's probably Yedinak's penalty, uh, just in the way that the Australian crowd electrified at that moment and the beer shower started and we had that sense of hope that, you know, we were really only... um, 20, 30 minutes away from a glorious result. Um, that probably is actually equal as an in stadium with the Peru fans and the noise they made and the song they sang and the feeling of drowning in their noise. I don't think I've ever felt so small in a stadium as in Sochi for that third game. And, and, and they were just phenomenal. And so for in stadium, they're the two fan experiences I'll take away. And I'm leaving out Tony Cruz's uh, winner against Sweden. I don't know why. But there were just so many. Going to the games was just uh, full of highlights. And the third one, (laughs) it wasn't with you. Um, I went out to get a haircut, you remember, um, get a beard trim. And uh, along the way, I went to a pub and I bought a round for Zhenya and his mate Misha. And they uh, asked me back to their house. They were desperate to get me back to their house. And I couldn't tell whether it was to kill me uh, or because it was going to be such an honour to have an Australian visitor during the World Cup. And the fact that I went and had this amazing feast. Oh, when I say a feast, it was cucumber and a little bit of kidney and uh, <laughs> a little bit of um, or other, other little salads. And Genia uh, introduced me to his wife. And there is, you can look up the episode because it is a, a bizarre and an extraordinary and a fun and scary night in a in a backwater of the suburbs of Sochi, um, in a real place that was an eye-opener because I guess we spent so much of our time in the inner cities and just to go out to an apartment block where, you know, it was dingy and dark and stray dogs and felt a little bit commission-y and there wasn't even a communal eating area within the apartment itself. They went out to a kind of a a communal garden um, to, to eat their food and a little communal vegetable patch next to it. And to have that night on Google Translate with Zhenya and Misha and Natasha, um, you know, that's probably the, the, the one night that I'll, I'll never forget from, from Russia. Um, and, you know, what started out as a, a beard trim ended up being, um, you know, just a, a phenomenal insight into the way uh, some Russians live there in Sochi. 
Um, so they're my three ones, um, uh, Francis. And, and for my final question, I'm actually going to pinch your one. Uh, what are your three standout moments from the tournament? Uh, what are the deathbed moments from Russia 2018 when you cast your mind back and we think about this amazing time we did spend together? Uh, what are the, the three things that stand out? Oh, so many, Tony, so many. Number one, Yandex stunt driving. You and I both have survived some of the most (laughs) hair-raising... You know, get the rosary beads out, pray to Lord Jeebus above, Yandex taxi driving on the face of the earth. You know, drivers driving with multiple mobile phones, reading them, trying to work out which direction to go in while the traffic is bumper to bumper, and they are driving basically in the back seat of the car in front of them. Drivers pulling across three lanes of traffic, which is travelling towards you at 60 kilometres an hour, so they can make a right-hand turn across a major highway. All of that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, and, you know, throwing the anchors on uh, at close distance and so you go face pressed up against the glass uh, on the windscreen while they just nonchalantly just pull the handbrake up. Stuff like that. Uh, Stuff that uh, makes you realise it's good to be alive. Every time you get out of a Yandex cab, you don't pay much for the Yandex, uh, and that's the reason why. So that's one of them. Um, The game days, Tony, all of the game days were superb. Each and every one of them is different. Uh, The sense of occasion when the Socceroos walk out. I know we did have a great game against Peru, but there is nothing quite quite like being in the stadium on a World Cup game day during the group stage. It is magic every time. It's a drug, and you and I are both addicted to it. I don't think there's a methadone program that helps you uh, get off off your chosen poison. Um, you know, the, the day against Denmark, that game was so absorbing. Uh, you know, from a while there, it felt like we could win that one. We described it as like having three grand finals, three AFL grand finals in the space of less than 20 days. <laughs> Uh, they are such special days from start to finish, and um, you know I'm going to miss them uh, in the next four years. And the third one, Tony, was you and I sitting by the Black Sea like a couple of Politburo members, uh, spending ten dollars an hour in our little hut by the ocean, hot pebbled beach, with our own beer fridge. That's right, on the beach with a beer fridge on the Black Sea looking like Khrushchev and Brezhnev and being able to sort of wade into the murky waters of the Black Sea pretending that it was, you know, Soviet summer. That was a special day. That was a lot of fun, Tony. And uh, let's hope we can do it again sometime soon. Das Vidanya.